Well, with uh, Thanksgiving later this week, many college students are finishing up finals. Do you all remember those days? Are some of you currently in those days? Some of you, right? Tell me, what does a professor give to each student? What does he hand out the first day of class? A syllabus, right? How, how many of you were faithful to read the syllabus? Okay, some honest, okay. Uh, Kenyon Wilson is a professor at the University of Tennessee. And this past year, he wanted to test whether any of his students actually read the syllabus for his music seminar. So you know what he did? On the second page of the three-page syllabus, he included the location and a combination to a locker inside of which was a $50 cash prize. So on the second page, here's the location of a locker, and inside the locker is a $50 cash prize, and here's the combination to the locker. Of the more than 70 students enrolled in his class, how many do you think read or even consulted the syllabus? None. <laughs> When the semester ended on December 8th, Wilson posted this on his Facebook page. He said, quote, my semester-long experience has come to an end. Today I retrieved the unclaimed treasure. Now tell me, would, would you have read the syllabus? Or better, better stated, when you were a student, did you read the syllabus? <laughs> or would you have missed out like those 70 students? I mean, just think of what they missed out on. I mean, who wouldn't want $50 cash? I mean, I know I would. You consider this, none of them received the treasure offered in those simple pages, those three simple pages. You know, I wonder if perhaps if perhaps we can treat the Bible in a very similar fashion. What I mean is, when it comes to, let's say, the seminar of life or the class of life, I wonder if at times, like those students, I wonder if we don't consult the syllabus, if you will, God has given us, like we should. Indeed, I wonder if, like those students, we either think we know what's already in here or we just don't esteem it as worthy of our attention. In fact, you don't have to say it out loud, but if someone were to follow you around all week, follow you around all week, what would they conclude about you and the Bible? Faith, here's, here's the question I want us to consider this morning, and that is this. Why should the Bible not only be considered sufficient for life and godliness, 
But also, why should the Bible, why should we consider the Bible to be superior to any other form of help or counseling when it comes to navigating life and life's difficulties? To put it another way, why should we esteem the Bible even more than a syllabus that has a $50 cash price? I mean, because, look, isn't the Bible outdated? Isn't it stale? Indeed, has not mankind made so many great discoveries that can help us and deal with life's problems far greater than anything like, like a dusty old book might be able to offer us? I mean, sure, sure the Bible's helpful when it comes to salvation. But yeah, we all agree on that. But is it truly superior to all other modes and methods to help us in life? Or better stated, is God's word really sufficient for the struggles you are facing right now in your life? So here's what I want to do this morning, Faith. I want to invite you to to set aside, if you could, just set aside whatever objections you might have to the Bible's sufficiency for your struggles. And here's what I want you to do. I just want you to simply consider what the Bible says about itself. For the next couple minutes... I invite you to consider what the Bible actually claims about itself. And then, and then you decide if you want to believe it or not. So, so if you haven't already, please turn through your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. That's page 103 in that white paperback Bible. As you're turning there, let me give you the context. In in Hebrews 4, the author exhorted the reader to be diligent to enter God's rest. This is what we looked at a couple weeks ago, right? As God's people, we've been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. We are not yet in the promised land, right? No, where are we? We're in the what? The wilderness, which means, among other things, that we will experience wilderness hardships. We're going to experience wilderness difficulties. We will suffer. We will be tested. And you know what Israel did when they were in the wilderness? They ignored God's word. They didn't heed it, nor, as the author has been making clear in chapters 3 and chapter 4, nor did they believe it. So now notice what the author says next in chapter 4, verse 12. In particular, I want you to notice what resource the author directs us to so we might persevere in the wilderness, so we might persevere amidst life's difficulties and enter God's final rest, okay? So follow along with me as I read Hebrews chapter 4. Actually, I'm going to start back up in verse 11 and read through 13, though this morning we're just going to focus in and give our attention on verse 12. So hear now the word of the Lord. The author writes this. 
So again, after exhorting us, be diligent to enter God's rest, verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And then he says this, remember Israel did not heed the word of God, ignored the word of God, verse 12, for the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Verse 13, and no creature is hidden from his sight, referring to God, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Amen and amen. This is God's good, good word. This past week, I've been putting up floodlights on several trees in our backyard. And you know what? It looks awesome. Right now, if you go out there and you plug in the lights, you know, we've got this big grass level area. It kind of has like a football stadium feel to it, okay? However, the goal is when it gets cold enough, to have our outdoor ice rink, we can skate under the lights all through the evening. And what a day of rejoicing that will be. Well, would it surprise you to know that I had difficulty installing <laughs> the first of those lights? Probably not. However, true story, it wasn't because of user error. I know, I'm just as surprised as you. It wasn't because of user error. No, my... My difficulty in installing that first light had everything to do with the type of tool I was using. You see, the side of each of the floodlights had these threaded knobs that needed to be removed and then put back on the bracket once, once the light was in place. And I was using pliers. There really is only the one sufficient tool for that job, and you know what that is an Allen wrench. Indeed, if, if I showed you a picture of it, you would quickly see that those, those knobs, those screws there, that part, those parts were actually designed for that tool. That is, there's only one tool that can properly move and adjust the light. Well, faith, in a very similar way, I want to strongly suggest to you that what the Bible says about this passage is that God's Word is the only sufficient tool for life's problems. For notice, the author there in verse 12, he likens God's Word to a certain type of instrument. And tell me, what type of instrument is it? A sword. Not just any kind of sword. What kind of sword? 
a double-edged or a two-edged sword. And over the next several minutes, Faith, when you consider what this text claims about this two-edged sword and what it can do, I'm going to argue that it becomes very clear that God's Word is the only sufficient tool for your life and for life's problems. And I'm, and I'm using my words carefully here. Indeed, please observe that the author cites three reasons why God's Word is powerful and the only sufficient tool for the problem you are experiencing in your life right now and mine. And the first is this, and, I, and again, I just want to invite you to consider, we, we, we must accept the Bible on its own terms. And what is the Bible claiming about itself? And let's give our gray matter space to really think deeply about what it's saying. Because the first thing that we see is that God's Word, it makes the claim that God's Word is living. And that's what he says there at the top of verse 12. For the Word of God is living and active. Okay, it's living. All right, well, in what sense is Scripture, is God's Word living? I mean, is it not paper and ink in cheap imitation leather, right? My Bible, I don't know about yours, but it doesn't move under its own power. It doesn't think or feel or make choices. So how can we speak of this book, the Word of God, as living? Well, consider what we learned just a few verses back in chapter 3, verse 12. Have your eyes fall there. Notice how that verse ends. Notice, it testifies that our God is the what? Living God. And since God is the living God and His Word cannot be separated from Him, that Word then is a living Word. That is, God's Word takes on God's own characteristics, which means it can never be exterminated, though many have tried. Consider, for example, of what happened in 298 A.D., that year was the height of Diocletian's persecution of the Christian church. That wicked Roman emperor not only murdered many Christians, but he also burned every Bible within the empire. Or so he thought. Indeed, an extreme act of arrogance in 298 A.D., he erected a column and set it atop the ashes of all the burned Bibles with this phrase written on the column, quote, the name of Christ is extinct. Yet not even 10 years later, his young hand-picked successor, Constantine, trying to figure out what he saw in the sky. You know what he did? He asked for a Bible. But there were none. 
because the previous guy had burned them all. So you know what Constantine did? He offered a reward for someone to bring him a Bible if they had one. And in less than 24 hours, 50 copies of the Bible showed up. And you know why? Because not even the, ruler, the world's top rulers can exterminate the living word of God. Or consider what took place in 1778 when the French philosopher Voltaire made the bold and blasphemous prediction that in a hundred years the Bible would be no more. Shortly after his prediction, Voltaire died. And you know what happened to his house? The Geneva Bible Society bought it and used it as a distribution center to put Bibles all around the world. Not only that, but the very publishing house that printed Voltaire's blasphemous statement starting printed Bibles. You know why? Because not even world-class philosophers can restrain the living and active Word of God. Amen? You see, faith history testifies to what we see taught in this verse. Namely, those who place the Bible in the casket of irrelevance and lower it down into the grave of disregard, only come to discover that the Bible outlives its pallbearers. The grass withers, the flower fades, but what? But the word of our God stands what? Forever, Isaiah 48. So, so here's my question. Do you see it as it describes itself? Do you see God's word for what it claims to be? Living and active. Faith. God's word is unrelenting. His truth is everlasting. His commands are enduring. His judgments are indisputable. His corrections are timeless. This book is fresher than tomorrow's newspaper. It will fight your temptations. It will guide your path. It will build your faith. It will feed your soul. Time cannot age this book, and ages do not time it. So why would you not avail yourself of it? Why would we not give diligent study and careful thought and application to this book. God's word is living. But second, consider how God's word is piercing. Look at that next phrase. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints, of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Tell me, who said this famous line? Quote, to boldly go where no man has gone before. Who said that? Captain Kirk from Star Trek, right? We're going to boldly go where no man has gone before. Faith, this text is testifying, it is declaring, it is asserting that God's word can go where no man can go. 
or anything else for that matter, and that is a person's soul. As pastor and author John MacArthur has correctly stated, the word can do what no psychotherapy can do. It opens the soul. When our, when our kids were younger, we taught them the Shorter Catechism, and question 19 of the Shorter Catechism is this. It says, have you a soul as well as a body? And the answer is, yes, I have a soul that can never die. And you know what? That's a really good answer. However, it's more biblically accurate, though, to say that you are a soul that will never die. You see, the Bible teaches that man is an embodied soul. Please hear me, not a dichotomy, or even less accurately, a trichotomy. You see this taught in the passage I just read. As pastor and counselor Jay Adams have correctly pointed out, commenting on this passage, he says, note there are two basic categories here, material, joints and marrow, and immaterial, spirit, soul, not three. Just as thoughts and intents are not to be separated, but are lumped together comprehensively in order to express the entire intellectual side. So spirit and soul are both mentioned to show that no aspect of the inner man is beyond the penetrating power of God's word. Now, and this is what I just want you to consider. Consider what the Bible is actually claiming about itself. It can actually accomplish what every other secular therapy seeks to do. And that is to pierce through the deepest parts of the inner man. Electroshock therapy. I mean, just go down the lists of therapies to get to the innermost part of a man to bring about change. Scripture claims to do, to get there, to boldly go where no one else can go. You see, contrary to, to the claims of some, the Bible is not, does not simply speak to surface level issues. Like, yeah, the Bible can help me, like, generally. No, the, the Bible speaks to the root issues. It, it pierces, it cuts, it gets there. It gets where we want it to go if we allow it. Which leads to the third reason why God's word is sufficient for our lives and life's problem. And that's because, and this is arguably the most important, because it's discerning. Look once more at verse 12, the last phrase there. So he talks about the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It piercing to the division of the soul and of the spirit of the joints and marrows. This is what the Bible claims to do. On its own terms, the Bible claims it gets there. But notice, most importantly, <laughs> speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. <laughs> no. There you go. I can't, and notice what it says here next. And discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Uh, 
archaeologists recently excavated the contents of a medieval convent in France, and they came across something very interesting. And here's what they found. They discovered in this convent, it's kind of odd, but they discovered five heart-shaped urns made out of lead containing embalmed human hearts. And two surprises came from this excavation. The first is archaeologists were delighted to find that four of the five hearts were exceptionally well-preserved. This is remarkable, considering the hearts are from the 15th century. But you know what the second surprise was? The archaeologists were, were startled to learn that three of those hearts had telltale signs of severe heart disease with plaque in the coronary arteries. And according to one researcher, the discovery that humans had heart disease even 400 years earlier is one of the most important discoveries in recent times. But you know what? This isn't new news. For according to Scripture, we have always known that humanity has diseased hearts. But it's not with plaque in our arteries, but it's with sin. I mean, consider what God himself says in chapter 3, verse 10. I want you to look there once more. Have your eyes fall there. This is God speaking, and what does he say? He says, they always go astray in their what? Hearts. They always go astray in their hearts. Now consider for a moment what chapter 4, verse 12 is saying. Consider what the Bible is claiming about itself. It claims that it's able to discern the thoughts and intentions of the what? Heart. And as we've discussed before, friend, in the Bible, the heart is not just the seat of the emotions. No, in Scripture, it refers to the mind, will, and emotions, right? It's your directional system. It's your steering wheel. It's the core of who you are as a person. So you know why this is significant? It's significant in this way. Listen to me. Because if the problem, your problem, my problem, if the problem is in our hearts, then the only sufficient instrument to get there is the Word of God. That's it. Only God's Word can cut and penetrate to our hearts the source of the problem. Listen, any other tool is dull and ineffective. Why? For only God's Word can properly diagnose our diseased souls and then cure them. Listen, I'm suggesting God's Word is the only sufficient tool for life's problems. And you know where the greatest problems in life lie? In our hearts. So, so again, here's the question. Why would we not give ourselves to the careful study, understanding, and application of God's Word? Why would we not avail ourselves of this sharp, living, and active tool, especially when it comes to wilderness struggles? to wilderness temptations, to wilderness trials. 
I mean, think about Jesus' own words in Luke 6.45. What does he teach in that text? Right? He teaches we live out of our hearts. Right? The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, while the evil person out of the evil treasure of his heart produces evil. So what can change our hearts? What can access that deep part of a person? Not the wisdom of man. Not modern science. Not godless psychology. No, only God's word can. At least that's what the Bible claims. My question is, do you believe it? Will you believe what the Bible claims about itself? Over 70 students missed out on $50 because they didn't take time to read the syllabus. They thought it either irrelevant or in pride. They thought they already knew what it said. Oh, may we not treat God's word that way. May we open up this book and allow it to cut. May we open up this book, allow it to cut, to also comfort to give wisdom, to give help. Indeed, friend, who knows what spiritual riches await you when you give yourself to submitting to the counsel of God's good word. May it cut, convict, and change us to be more like Jesus. Amen? Let's pray.